the bad outweighed the good on Sunday. Welcome, Bird Gang, on today's show. Paul Calvisi joins me. What did he see field level? Cardinals once again struggled in the passing game. Two interceptions certainly didn't help matters. The defense played well, well enough to win, and individually there were some bright spots, especially among the younger talent. It's Cardinals Cover 2, Episode 692, and it starts now. Welcome to Cardinals Cover 2. Buda Baker, one heart, one threat. This guy's unbelievable. Cardinals Cover 2 is presented by Hyundai, proud partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and by Arizona Cardinals Podcasts. Visit azcardinals.com slash podcasts. He's at the 10, half the 5, he's in again! Some more Murray Magic! Wow! Here's Craig Grealoux. Just because I know you're such a huge fan of their head coach, Paul, did you happen to notice after week eight, what team leads the NFC West? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, Coach Double Rainbow. I know. I know. He's he's feeling himself. He's smelling himself up there in Seattle. I get it. You know, Jamal Adams going all Lino Messi there with a header that put the P.J. Walker pass up into the air. Otherwise, Seattle does not get the win and the division lead. But, uh, yeah, some good fortune benefiting the Seahawks there. Five and two because the 49ers inexplicably have now lost three straight games. Uh Au contraire over there, uh, Craig Grayley. You, you saw that coming? Uh, no, I'm not going to say inexplicably. Oh, okay. I can explain it. Oh, well. <laughs> In the first five games, you had the quarterback, Brock Purdy, with zero interceptions. In the last three games, he has five interceptions. There you go. Now, does that remind you of anyone? Yes. Way to transition here on Cardinals Cover 2, presented by Hyundai, proud partner of the Arizona Cardinals, as we discuss Sunday's 31-24 loss to the Ravens. Five straight losses, 1-7 in seven overall, and if it were not for that fourth quarter in which the Cardinals outscored Baltimore 17-10, to the game would not look as good as it did, at least on paper. But you bring up the interceptions. Josh Dobbs, two more picks. That is now five over the last four games after he did not have a single interception in the season's first four games. You protect the football, you stay on the field, give your chance to score points, you give up the football, and you put your defense in bad situations. The first interception was a bad pass. Second interception was a bad decision, a bad read. And look, let's go back to the first one. This has happened before. It is a tie game. You're going to the half. You're moments away, and all of a sudden, he airmails his intended target. Michael Wilson of memory serves, and Brandon Stevens ends up with a pick. And a few plays later, Gus Edwards with the touchdown run to make it 14-7 going into the half. All right. I mean, it's deflating. It's disappointing. But then you come out and uh, you try and mount something, and then uh, I'll use the word inexplicable in this case. There you are at your own 10-yard line on first down. You're rolling left, and you throw into double, maybe even triple coverage, what he explained as cover two intended for Trey McBride. And Geno Stone with his NFL leading fifth interception at that point easily could have been another Baltimore DB who would have got his hands on that ball before Trey McBride. And guess what? That's... That is enough of a margin of difference based on how the Cardinals offense 
is not prolific, obviously. And so that's all it takes in today's NFL. A couple of turnovers. It's a winning stat, right? And or losing stat in this case. If you're going to lose the turnover margin by uh, with those couple of interceptions, just like the 49ers and Brock Purdy, you're going to end up in the loss column. And we've talked about this several times this season. The Cardinals, as currently constructed, not talented enough to overcome these mistakes. Two turnovers resulting in two touchdowns, and at that point, it's 21-7. to Hey, the difference is the two interceptions leading to two touchdowns. And yeah, the Cardinals did mount a comeback. But before we get to that, because I'm just curious, on the sideline, and I know it was a talking point not only post-game with reporters, but on Cardinal Talk as well. Josh Dobbs did not look good through the first three quarters. He had completed 10 passes for a total of 60 yards going into the fourth quarter. My question is, and it was a question posed to Jonathan Gannon post-game, why not make a change? Why not look at your rookie Clayton Toon at that point in the game? You're looking for a spark. Now I know Dobbs did spark the team in the fourth quarter, Thankfully, otherwise this might be a different conversation. But at that moment, in that exact moment after that interception, I admit, I thought about it. I'm sure I wasn't alone. Ron Wolfley, post-game, brought it up. He had those same thoughts and feelings in the moment. Yet, Gannon told reporters he did not consider. Now, whether that's more coach speak than anything else, just getting trying to get a sense of what you felt on the sidelines, Paul, in that moment. I saw zero consideration. Of the rookie, the fifth round rookie, that no moment did I think he, did I even get the sense he was thinking about it. In fact, after the second interception, for the Cardinals went back on the field and then mounted a bit of a rally in that fourth quarter. And yes, you can cite how they were essentially in a prevent defense, yes. and and I get that. But Jonathan Gannon, to the contrary, actually went up to Josh Dobbs, and he doesn't do a whole bunch of having individual one on one conversations over the course of a game. That's just sort of his style. Like a Bruce Arians would go up to guys and have one-on-one conversations quite a bit here and there. Uh, but with Jonathan Gannon, he's he's pretty much on the white stripe. He's in front of everyone. Uh, here and there, he'll pick his spots. Some good, some bad. There's a certain DB who's no longer with his team who got aired out uh, during the uh, second half of the 49ers game for maybe turning down Christian McCaffrey on a couple of snaps. But in this case, he went over and made a beeline for Josh Dobbs after the second interception, after Josh Dobbs had gone to the bench during the defensive stand and and had a chance to talk with the quarterback's coach, Israel Wolfork, and look at the tablet and the whole deal. And then Gannon came over and had a pretty animated pep talk. It was a one-way conversation. It was the head coach trying to support and pump up his quarterback. So with that, using that as an example, I, I just don't see it. And look, Craig, we can argue all you want about what do you have under the hood in Clayton Tune? And nobody truly knows. I will say this, though. Last time we saw him, which was against the Vikings, and Brian Flores dialed up a safety blitz off the edge, DB blitz off the edge, and uh, he looked like a rookie. He was looking left, and the blitz was coming from the right, or was vice versa, and he got hit and fumbled the ball deep in the Cardinals' own territory. Now it was a preseason game, but it exposed Clayton Tune in that moment as most definitely a rookie. There were some good moments in Minnesota where the Cardinals went 11 on 11 and they were going against Brian Flores and they were starters on starters. And, you know, he's fitting the ball into some tight windows. He looked pretty nice. But when it comes to actually reading and reacting to NFL defenses, I'm guessing they don't think he's ready to give the Cardinals a competitive chance. 
And so, because if if he was ready, Craig, there's no doubt he would be playing in my mind because this staff has proved they're playing the best player. Keytrol Clark can be a starter and get 100% of the snaps, and a month later he can be deactivated and on the sidelines in sweats. You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem, and I don't see them really playing favorites right now. I don't even think we can just say we think that's the case. I think we know that's the case because, to your point, if Toon is ready, he would have been on the field already this season yes. based off the inconsistency that Dobbs has shown as a quarterback. Yet at the same time, okay, I get it. Fans want to see something different. They're tired of what they're seeing at the quarterback position. We're waiting for Kyler Murray, but Toon is not ready. And the coaches have said that by their actions, not by their words. Okay, so now that Kyler Murray is practicing, is he taking some of those reps that Toon was getting earlier in the season? So now Toon can't get ready to play and be your backup quarterback because now some of those reps need to go to K1 to get him ready for perhaps either this week or next week or at some point in the month of November. Well, there's no doubt they're being creative and getting Kyler Murray reps. He's running the twos against the ones. He's running some of the scout team. Yes, he's ducking in and getting reps with the ones here and there. Yes, he's staying after practice all by himself with the practice squad receivers. They're getting extra reps that way. So they've tried to manufacture as much practice time as they can, as much worthwhile and meaningful practice time as well to get him game ready. Whenever that's going to be, I don't know. But if you're the head coach of an NFL team, it's not the fans that are your first priority. It's your own locker room. And so if Clayton Toon isn't ready to go and you pull the plug on Josh Dobbs, what does that say to the other 52 guys in that locker room? Then you risk at 1-7 and seven, losing the team. What's the one thing that has been consistent that you can't deny? The fight, the effort, the intensity, the urgency. All of a sudden, you're going into preseason mode and playing a fifth-round rookie quarterback who the rest of the team knows deep down is not as equipped as a Josh Dobbs in year seven. Then do you run the risk of losing that locker room and or getting something less than their best effort? To me, that's that's part of the equation of you're the head coach that most definitely precedes any consideration with the fan base. It's a good point because players know. Players yep. watch practice. They're in the middle of practice. Us, we get 20 minutes a day. Fans only see what they see on Sundays. So the players will know. Now, there hasn't been anything I've heard, even off the record or anything, that Maybe there's an undercurrent to see something else behind center. Not yet. And right now, you have to assume, and I understand, yes, I am assuming, that right now, until K1 is back, Josh Dobbs gives you the best chance to win a ball game. And Jonathan Gannon said as much postgame to you and reporters. He answered with one word, yeah, when asked if Dobbs would start in Cleveland. He told you, Paul, quote, I'm sure we'll go with Josh. Now, there's a great story. Josh Dobbs, once upon a time, was with the Cleveland Browns. You've got Drew Petzing going back to Cleveland, Israel Wolfert going back to Cleveland, Yelda Froholt going back to Cleveland. So there's a number of storylines, but forget storylines. That doesn't matter at this point. You just need a quarterback who is capable of moving the football up and down the field. And besides that, getting the ball into the red zone and scoring touchdowns 
before your opponent says, you know what, we're backing our foot off the gas. It's 24-7. to 7. We just need these last nine and a half minutes to go so we can get on a plane and head back east. Yeah, Think about it. Josh Dobbs did not complete a pass beyond 10 yards until mid-fourth quarter. So until the Baltimore Ravens went with that pre-fence soft defense and, and, and ran those safeties high, he wasn't getting the ball downfield in the passing game. You know, something, something has to improve in the past. You saw Will Levis come in. Now, this makes your argument for Clayton Toon. Will Levis comes in, and he throws three 50-plus-yard completions, which I, I saw next-gen stat said that was the most in the next-gen stat era, which I think goes back to 2015, 2016, something like that. So it's the downfield passing attack that is missing right now. Are the Cardinals still running the ball? Yeah. Amari Di Mercado, really impressive at times. 20 carries for 78 yards rushing. It seemed like he had a 100-yard rushing game. He ripped off enough, enough runs to the second level where that Cardinals offensive line was effective in plowing the way against a really good Baltimore defense. Because guess what you have in Cleveland? You're going to go against a Browns defense that is top three in most metrics. That made Geno Smith look pretty bad at times. He had a couple of picks in that game. So you need to figure something out. I mean, when I look at Hollywood Brown, who, by the way, once again was getting behind and getting away from that Ravens secondary, just like every other team he's gone against, and his long reception was nine yards. You know, something's wrong. Something is broken. You're just lacking that downfield passing attack. This is now back-to-back games and three times in the past four games overall that Dobbs has finished with less than 200 net passing yards. And again, that fourth quarter, he was outstanding. 15 of 20, 148 yards, two touchdowns. But that, that's, those are empty stats to me. Those, those numbers don't mean anything because the game had already been decided. Now, the Cardinals did make it interesting. And if not for a Paris Johnson Holding call, who knows? Maybe the score is 31-23. You recover the onside kick, and we're talking about a miraculous fourth-quarter comeback. But my guess is John Harbaugh and that Ravens defense would have been a little bit different in their coverage and their defense late in the game. It comes back to what we talked about a week ago. In order to win in this game, it is a passing league. You have to throw the football, and right now the Cardinals do not have a consistent passing game in order to be competitive a lot of the times. I'm looking at this tweet from a Cardinals insider. Oh, it's Craig Grillo. It's, uh, here it is. Cardinals' first four drives in the second half. Five plays for negative 12 yards. Six plays for 19 yards. One play pick. Three plays for negative seven yards. All told, 15 plays for exactly zero yards. First four drives of the second half. That was a really telling stat. And that was about thereafter is where Baltimore sort of changed its defensive philosophy slash aggressiveness. So, yes. Now the question is, all right, how do you diagnose this? Your tight end had 95 yards receiving. You got 14 targets, 10 catches, Trey McBride. So obviously you're not connecting and producing with the receivers. It's that QB to receiver connection that just isn't there, isn't consistent enough and if I had the ability to diagnose it beyond just accuracy, what else could it be? You know, and so, and how much can that realistically improve? So, do you come in with a totally different game plan to a degree against Cleveland? And do you feature a lot more of the Josh Dobbs run game? Do you go maybe back, uh, speaking of Lamar Jackson, back to Lamar Jackson 2018, where it's run first and second, pass third? 
I don't know, but uh, I'm curious what sort of adjustments might be coming. 129 rushing yards against the ninth best rush defense. That's what the Cardinals did on Sunday. Even that opening drive, 75 yards on 12 plays, but nine of those plays were running plays. Now the Cardinals benefited from a couple of penalties, costly penalties against the Ravens, but that opening drive, Paul, it looked great. Now that downfield passing game was lacking, although there was a Hollywood Brown drew a defensive pass interference in the end zone. So that you kind of have to take into account as well. He's getting open. Dobbs is looking his way. It's just a connection. You're not going from point A to point B. It's not a straight, solid line. There's some there's some dots in there. They're, they're, you're running out of ink or whatever, and it's just, it's just not happening right now. And I think that's where fans are getting frustrated because they want to see what's behind door number two. And right now that door is... Maybe unlocked, it's just not able to open all the way, and that's referring to Kyler Murray. And look, there was that first possession, like you mentioned, 12 plays, 75 yards, and then what, the next the next nine Cardinals drive netted 81 total yards. And if you look at you know the drive chart, after the touchdown drive with the push play to make it 7-0, the Cardinals offense gave it up on downs two times in a row, then a punt, then a pick, then two more punts, another pick, a punt, and then they went touchdown, touchdown, field goal to end the game. So there was that stretch there. Now, Baltimore's defense make an adjustment. Was there something they weren't doing in the first drive? And the ever-popular, okay, here's what they got going today. We're going to make these adjustments going forward. Um, look, e- either way, they have to. you have to do a better job of making a defense respect your quarterback. And if they're going to go with those two high safeties and try and keep everything underneath, and basically from what I saw, on the third downs and obvious passing situations, yes, you got some exotic blitzes from Mike McDonald, which is exactly what the Cardinals predicted, what they talked about all week. Until then, they were more apt just to rush three or four and drop seven or eight. And why not? If you don't have a quarterback who's in sync with his receivers, then guess what? You try and make those windows as tight as possible and make it as difficult as possible to get that connection. And I fully expect Cleveland to do much of the same, especially when they don't need to bring the blitz a lot of times. Miles Garrett had a huge sack of Geno Smith late in that game that took the Seahawks out of field goal range. And for the most part, probably should have sealed the Seahawks' doom, right? And and their fate, it should have been a, a loss for the Seahawks until P.J. Walker put it in the air and, and ricocheted off Jamal Adams' helmet and turned into a pick that turned into the game winner. The two interceptions that Dobbs threw, according to Next Gen Stats, did come when the Ravens blitzed. In fact, Dobbs was four of seven for 28 yards and two interceptions when he was blitzed. So, again... This is a copycat league, and whether you need to blitz or not, but when you dial it up, you're getting home. Talking about the Ravens, the Cleveland Browns, another solid defense ahead. So I'm curious now, okay, Dobbs, you're the starter, but once again, if things don't look good, especially in the first half, I would not be surprised if you see Clayton Tune, if for no other reason, just to do something different. But that's just me, and I understand the back and forth that we had as far as the other 52 guys in the locker room and whether the coaches think Tune is ready. It's just you're banging your head against the wall here looking for a solution, and are you trying everything that you have at your disposal? And Look, the unknown is what does Clayton Tune look like in practice? We have no idea. We have no clue. We only see basically glorified warm-ups as the media. So you have no idea. Has he performed? 
with the twos against the Cardinals' starting defense, or has he looked like a fifth-round rookie? We have no idea. I just keep coming back to the precedent that's already been set. If you're the best answer at a position, you'll be in uniform, and you'll be on the field come game day. Is there any sort of allegiance to Josh Dobbs? You gave up, what, a fifth-round yep. pick for Josh Dobbs? He's making $1.5 million this year. Uh, so it's not like there's this huge investment in Josh Dobbs. And it's not like if you pull him, you're going to you know, ruin his confidence. So you could easily look for a spark, pull him in the second half against Cleveland, and then start him the next week against Atlanta if Kyler still isn't deemed ready to go. So we'll see. I, I just don't harbor any great hopes of, of someone coming in off the bench and all of a sudden becoming the next Brock Purdy. I, I don't see that in Clayton Toon. But, uh, you know, he, he does have a lot of experience from the college level, around 50 starts, and maybe he's seen enough from the sideline. When did Brock Purdy come into action for the Niners last year? It was early December. Yeah. So, and, and you know, we know until this last three-game stretch, he was undefeated in the regular season. All I know is you, know, you better figure out that defensive front for the Browns because, for example, like Michael Pierce, number 58, that nose tackle, that dude was a problem. So when you cite... Those issues Josh Dobbs had in the face of pressure and blitz. There were plenty of other times where Michael Pierce was just a wrecking ball and collapsing that pocket from the inside out. Dude stands six foot, three hundred fifty-five pounds. I mean, talk about that body type. And he was all over the stat page, and he made plays the entire game. I mean, you never think of a sighting a nose tackle who basically is tasked with taking on the double team with being such a game wrecker. John Harbaugh on Michael Pierce. Quote, he just took over the game inside. Harbaugh called him dominant. And those two fourth down stops, the pass deflection, Michael Pierce. The stop for no gain, Amari Di Mercado, Michael Pierce, yep. who just shoved aside, yelled a Froholt. And you're talking about someone that we are familiar with in the NFC West. That's Aaron Donald, where you have a interior defensive lineman wreck in offense, and Michael Pierce, two big plays stopping the Cardinals offense. And you know what? He had the strip sack where the Cardinals got it back. Yelda Froholt fell on it, but it was a 15-yard loss that put the Cardinals behind the sticks. That was a very key possession as well. He ended up with five tackles, a sack, a tackle for loss, a quarterback hit, a pass defense, and a forced fumble, along with a batted down pass on fourth down, the stuff on fourth and one. So yeah, Michael Pierce uh, was in there looking like a Hall of Famer. It's funny, on the sideline, I had mentioned the during one of the commercial breaks, I mentioned to our producer, Jim Amohundro, on the mic, I said, and I looked it up, and I'm like, okay, Michael Pierce, here it is, six foot three fifty five, and one of the team doctors was standing next to me, he said, yeah, that's a suboptimal BMI, <laughs> body mass index. He said, if if that patient walked into my my office, I'd tell that patient, um, you better consider weight loss or you're a candidate for knee replacement in 10 years. <laughs> but this guy's a professional nose tackle, so yes, he wears it well. Speaking of the defense and why I think a lot of fans, Paul, are frustrated by the Cardinals' offense is because that Cardinals' defense – Considering what Lamar Jackson and the Ravens did a week ago to the ball, to the Detroit Lions, more than 500 yards of total offense, better than nine yards per play. Well, they were held. Lamar Jackson was held to a season low, 157 through the air. He completed less than 70% of his passes for only the second time this season. And the defense overall allowed a season low in net passing yards and had its best effort since week one as far as total yards allowed. That Cardinals defense played extremely well, and yeah, they did give up some scores, 
But two of those scores came on short field, and that quick change, now they'll tell you we still need to keep you out of the end zone. They were unable to, but that defense did enough to keep the team in the game, and the onus falls on the offense to finish the job, and they did not. Yeah, the only glaring deficiency would be the red zone, right, where Baltimore went 4-4 four for four in the red zone. Otherwise, everything else, I mean, like, like Jalen Thompson said after the game, quote, I think the defense took a big step today. So – how refreshing was it to have your starting safeties for the first time since week one? How many tackles did Jalen Thompson and Buda Baker make that save big plays? You didn't really feel like you had that big play threat from Lamar, which is saying something because that's always – you're talking about a guy who on any snap can rip you for a big home run touchdown, either through the air or with his legs. Cardinals did a fantastic job from what I could tell – and maintaining the rules and responsibilities, gap integrity, and, and, and rushing with a purpose and keeping him in the pocket. He, he, didn't hurt, he did not hurt the Cardinals with his legs. I mean, his long run was 13, and that was really about it in terms of the run game. So, you know, but once again, Lamar was able to still have a passer rating of 94 without all that production. So he was efficient enough, and in the red zone, he was money. And that was the difference in the game. Relying on that ground game, Gus Edwards, three touchdown runs. But that Cardinals defense for the first time this season, you brought up Buda Baker and Jalen Thompson since week one. We also saw something that our colleague, the voice of the Cardinals, Dave Pash, brought up right before the game. And that was, hey, expect to see a rotation at cornerback. And we did for the first time this season. Two series at least that I noticed Marco Wilson starting on the sideline. He missed six snaps. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot until you see that he only missed two snaps total in the first seven games of the season. So, Buda Baker is back healthy. Jalen Thompson is back healthy. You're getting Garrett Williams more snaps in the slot. And now, all of a sudden, Marco Wilson losing a little bit of time. Antonio Hamilton seeing more time at corner. Starling Thomas, Paul, played 100% of the snaps a week ago, only on the field for 17 snaps on Sunday so what do you think what do you what do you know and then Keytrail Clark just basically a non-factor because he wasn't in uniform yeah I have no real great insight as to what Keytrail Clark has done or, or has failed to do that has resulted in him now not even dressing for the game I'll just use the cornerback position as evidence that if Clayton Toon was ready to go he would be playing because look what they have done at corner they have gone through a number of different players they're they're going to go with anyone, the hot hand. They're going to go with anyone they can rely on. I think with Marco Wilson, I, just my guess, they're trying to get him to play the ball. You know, play the ball. And too many times he's catching up to receivers and not getting his head turned around, and he's too apt to draw the flag. You see, an Antonio Hamilton and Starling Thomas do a much better job from what I've seen just in playing the football, being less of a risk of getting flagged up by the official. You know, he's, they've been reliable in run force and tackling. So think about it. Starling Thomas, who's way off the radar, undrafted rookie out of UAB, I believe. And for him to be in there and getting meaningful snaps by week eight, it just shows you that if you show the coaching staff that you're capable, you will get an opportunity. They're not playing favorites to the point where, you know, if they have a better option than a Marco Wilson who went in as cornerback one, Throughout the offseason and training camp, the beginning of this season, they don't hesitate to pull the trigger. 
something to keep an eye on as far as snap counts because right now cornerback you really don't I don't think you've ever had that CB1 this season it was almost by default that it was Marco Wilson because he was the one who had the most experienced and then you were hoping Antonio Hamilton could be that guy and then in training camp it was Keetrell Clark opposite Marco Wilson and then now you go from training camp starter to now inactive that's a gigantic drop-off. And there is a method to the manner in which they're plugging these players in, in my opinion, in that it goes something like this. Look, if it's all about the future, the future is now. So if you're a six-round rookie, Keytrail Clark, you're given every opportunity to win that job and maybe even a little extra. Antonio Hamilton, older than the defensive coordinator in the final year of contract, guess what? You're a known. Uh, We know what you can do. We're going to find out what these unknowns are all about. But then eventually you got to come back to performance. And if someone isn't holding up and Antonio Hamilton is a proven commodity, you see it in practice every single day, now he gets the playing time. Conversely, someone comes in off the street of Starling Thomas and he shows capable, then guess what? He can earn an opportunity and, and that door is open. So, and a Marco Wilson in a contract year? Or is he the, is he, he has the ability to be extended uh, yeah. after this season, I, I believe. It was 2020. His contract's not up, but to your point, yeah, you're. They need to make a decision by sometime in this offseason. So, look, we've said it before, I'll say it again. If the Cardinals end up with two top 10 picks, two top 15 picks, good thing Carolina beat Houston, I would not be shocked if one of those picks is cornerback one. A franchise, if a franchise corner is sitting there in the top half of round one, I think the Cardinals will be very interested. Should be interested in someone on the defensive line as well, although I like what Dante Stills has done. And yes, Ron, hopefully I'll say it, from West Virginia, a sack and a half, a couple of quarterback hits, five tackles overall. He's making the most of his opportunity, as is Amari DiMercato. And we got to talk about Trey McBride and what he has been able to do. He is your starting tight end. In fact, played a season best as far as not only snaps but percentage. 63 of the 77 offensive snaps he was on the football field and had a career dairy in both targets, catches, and receiving yards. Uh, Craig, this would be a good time to mention that he's our Angry Bird Award winner for Week 8, Trey McBride. Uh, Not just the production, but the fact that as tight end one, he was out there. Uh, He was very demonstrative. He was incredibly energetic. He didn't haul in that one third down pass. I've never seen him so hard on himself. In fact, he slammed his helmet so hard, the equipment guys came over and checked it. They looked at it, sort of like you would slam your golf club like you do, Craig, you know, after you know, after you, you, you chunk one out of the bunker, and then all of a sudden you have to check the blade to see if it's true. They were checking the face mask. They're like, okay, is this thing still legit here? Is this still game-worthy? So, But then he rebounded, and he made some more plays down the stretch. And then for him to fight and get some help from his 300-pound friends to get into the end zone – that right there qualifies as the most hellacious play or player, and thus Trey McBride is your Angry Bird Award winner for this week. That might be the play of the year, catching that ball at the two-yard line and then keeping his feet moving, and all of a sudden there's, what, four or five Raven defenders around him and his teammates, Di Mercado, Paris Johnson, I think I saw Will Hernandez in there as well, and it just became a rugby scrum, yep. and it forced the momentum into the end zone. A little bit surprised the whistle wasn't blown to stop that play. But if the momentum is still going forward, 
the play's not really dead yet, even though you might have 22 guys in a in a in a group trying to get that ball across the goal line. The pile really moved when Paris Johnson and Will Hernandez showed up. There was forward momentum to the point where they weren't blowing the whistle. But is he gonna get there? Is he gonna get there? And then when the number 70 and number 76 showed up, well, the full head of steam and slammed into the back of the pile. Well, guess what? That became a legit 50 car pileup out on I-10. 14 targets, 10 catches, 95 receiving yards, and a touchdown. And going back to your original thought as far as, okay, it's not so much this season, it's seasons beyond, you have to figure out some of these players. Are you a part of the future? Especially those players that were not drafted by this front office, were not brought in by this front office. So what are you doing with your opportunity? And Trey McBride, at least, again, it's one game, but if Zach Ertz is unavailable, and yeah, you have Jeff Swain. We saw Elijah Higgins on the field a little bit more this season than we had on Sunday. But McBride is the guy, and it seems to be that one player that Dobbs does have an on-field chemistry with, and is that tight end. And, and he's the one tight end who doesn't go down on first contact. He's breaking tackles. He's making guys miss. That athleticism, I was talking to him last week in the uh, locker room. It's funny because I think Darren Urban had this same thing on azcardinals.com but I had asked him about that hurdle and he showed me a picture on his phone from his Colorado State days he had a big hurdle and there was a professional photographer who snapped the shot money picture in mid-air mid-hurdle both legs up in the air as he's going over a strong safety it looked like and so he's done that before it's one of the reasons he was a second round pick the first tight end taken in the 2022 draft speaking of second round picks B.J. Ojolari at his first career sack, and we had a chance to talk to him after the game. Nick Rawls kind of spoke it into existence, said he'd been good on film, uh, he'd been doing what he'd been at, but he didn't have that splash play yet, is what Nick Rawls told the media going into the Baltimore game. And B.J. Ojolari came in, and he delivered, and uh, it was good just to talk to him after the game. You can tell that obviously it was a slow start in the offseason, but now he's finally starting to get traction, starting to feel comfortable getting that game confidence, and he's got a, getting a lot of extra work, you know, working with guys like Dennis Gardeck and Zayvon Collins after practice. Season I, 25 snaps on Sunday for Ojolari. That hard work during the week paying off on Sunday, and it's been a slow build for Ojolari because he didn't have much of an offseason. But that third quarter sack, it wasn't like a bull rush and you immediately get to the quarterback, and the fact that it was against Lamar Jackson, someone who is tough to bring down in the pocket, scrambles around, and Ojolari had to make a couple of different moves before he was able to get to Lamar to bring him down for his first career sack. Yeah, it was good closing speed, right? He had good burst. You can see the athleticism. And what I like, too, is you can always tell how well-liked you are, how well-respected you are when you come back to the sideline based on the reception you get. And when he came back to the sideline, I actually wrote down in my notes, the offensive line got off their keisters from the bench and made a beeline to dap him up especially a Paris Johnson and a DJ Humphreys. They, they really, because you know what, those O-line, D-line, you know, on Thursdays, it gets really competitive and feisty. They're going in against each other, but they're also helping each other and trying to get into the minds of what those guys are encountering. And so not only is Zayvon Collins and Dennis Gardak, but Cardinals offensive linemen have helped B.G. Ojolari. So when they see a payoff in a game, it's sort of like, all right, it's gratifying, for the teammates, for the vets who have been helping the young guys as well. Individually, there has been enough, even on Sunday, but this season, DeMercado, younger players, B.J. Ojolari, Dante Stills, Trey McBride. Individually, there are a number of bright spots. It's when you put everything together that you're not quite 
whole yet, and I think that's where this team is moving forward and why 2024 is so important as far as the draft and free agency. Figuring out here this season, okay, who can we rely on, and now let's fill in the rest. Let me just throw out a hypothetical. Let's say you had a fully healthy, game-ready Kyler Murray in that game against Baltimore. You don't have those two interceptions. You do have a downfield passing game. You do have a couple of deep shots to a Rondell Moore and or a Hollywood Brown. How different is that final score? How different is that game? Do you have enough right now around Kyler Murray, if he comes back and he really is the two-time Pro Bowl quarterback, to be competitive, to rip off a few wins, maybe more down the stretch? Because how many games have the Cardinals lost competitive losses where the difference was the quarterback or lack thereof? How many teams can win without their franchise quarterback? So if Kyler gets plugged into this equation at some point in November and then through December and January, could the Cardinals theoretically go on a run like the Lions did the end of last year where they won a bunch of games down the stretch and really provided momentum into the next season? Is that possible, feasible, doable once you get Kyler Murray back into this offense, especially if a James Conner is coming back and you really have a a balanced offense, which is something that when Kyler has had it in his career, i.e. the first half of 2021, Cardinals started 7-0-10-2 when James Conner was having a Pro Bowl season 2021 and they were jack-stopping teams like the Rams on the road week four that season where they ran for 230. So if you have that sort of running game, which – it's potent enough. You're a legit top 10, even top 5 running team this year, and now you plug Kyler Murray in. I just That's that's what I wonder about, what's still to come. It could look a lot different than 1-7 over the last two months of this season, potentially. Are you saying there's a potential opportunity for the Cardinals to be the Week 1 opponent of the reigning Super Bowl champions <laughs> no. like the Lions were for the Kansas City Chiefs? No. See, now that's just taking my observation <laughs> and thinking out loud in my thought bubble and now trying to turn it into a hot take, which it isn't. Okay, What you don't want to do is bring up the Detroit Lions and that comparison with the head coach. Jonathan Gannon has already shot that down because that is something that a lot of people are noticing. You bring in a brand new head coach and you try to build around something, build around Jared Goff. Can this team now build around Kyler Murray? And that's the question. What do they have in a quarterback? And when do we see Kyler? Is that this week against Cleveland? Probably not. More likely against Atlanta. And if it is Atlanta, Paul, that's four games, then the bye week, and then another four games. Eight games total of evaluation for Monty Austin Ford and company to decide, okay, Kyler Murray, are you a part of this or do we need to look elsewhere? Okay, wait a minute. I'm trying to take this one game at a time. The bye week is after Atlanta? No, I mean, you got start with Atlanta. Yep. There's four straight games okay. and then the bye week. Okay, because I would say if that no, the was... the bye week's not until mid-December or That's the what second week okay. of December. Yeah. All right. So, and look, we have no assurance that he will be active and in uniform for Atlanta. Now they have to put him on the 53, which I think they're going to do because we're going to see him at some point this season, but there's no guarantee you're going to see him week 10. Would that make a lot of sense? You're at home. You have James Conner back. But look, when he's ready, he's going to play. It's not going to be predicated on the opponent. You have no I mean, that that's just not part of the equation. You're not picking your perfect opponent to come back against. You're just trying to determine, 
all right, when is he equipped? And at this point, equipped mentally. Because more than once, Jonathan Gannon has said he's, quote, fully healthy. He's full go. Those are the terms that the head coaches use. So what's left to be determined? I guess confidence level, maybe in the injury itself, the ability to run this offense and make sure that you are giving the Cardinals the best chance to win when it comes to the quarterback room. Uh, So these are other things that are are part of the equation and part of the consideration that we just don't know at this point. How is it tracking? And, you know, I've been saying since April, I've been going with Halloween, give or take a week. So give me some grace. If it ends up being Atlanta, I'm still right. If it isn't, then I'm like Danny, and I'm dead wrong. (laughs) Wow, I love the obligatory shot shot at the uh, colleague who can't defend themselves at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll give you, I'll give you that, Paul. If you say Halloween, give or take a week, you know the plus or minus, the margin of error. I'll, I'll give that to you. And that's what I've been saying since April. But if it's not Atlanta and goes beyond Atlanta, then guess what? I'm dead wrong, and I'm over in the penalty box with Danny Sarek as well, and she's going to have company. Misery loves company, as they like to say, so all is good here. And on that note, we will put a lid on this edition of Cardinals Cover 2, presented by Hyundai, proud partner of the Arizona Cardinals. As always, special thanks to our executive producer, Jim Omohundro, our associate producer, Cody Fincher. For Paul Calvisi, I'm Craig Riolu. We'll talk to you next time here on Cardinals Cover 2.